Welcome to The Chapel Online. At The Chapel, we're about helping people meet, know, and follow Jesus on the campus, in the city, and around the world. I want to start by giving thanks to Dave uh, Ali for being here last week and, and helping us get launched into a, a new section in 2 Peter where the Apostle Peter says, hey, we've talked about this lofty kind of who you are in Christ, your, your heavenly citizens, your royal priesthood, your holy nation, you're a God's special possession. How do you live that out in daily life? How does that play out? And so... Uh, verse 11 through chapter 3, verse 7 is what that covers. And if you found last week a challenge, you definitely find this week another challenge to see how it's played out. Dave ended his message with uh, a statement that I really like. So I want to start with that. And it's this statement, live freely as God's slaves. It's kind of an oxymoron because it has freedom and slavery in the same sentence. And we're going to look at both of these ideas, the idea of freedom in Christ and the idea of slavery in Christ. Um, it's from 1 Peter 2.16, and this is what it says. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Free people is a description that is used frequently of Christians and Christianity people that are free. If our principal position is as citizens in heaven, then we can freely submit to authorities on earth because this is not our primary place of residence. We are foreigners. Did you get that? That's what he's saying. So we can, we can submit out here uh, to God and, and live as his slaves, and that frees us up to live freely on this earth. So that's kind of how it unfolds. Now, today, there's, uh, we're going to be talking about slaves and masters. There's three major components in this section. Submission to civil authorities, submission as slaves to masters, then in marriage, wives to husbands, and husbands relating to our wives. So it's kind of a minefield uh, for our current day culture to talk about these things. And therefore, I'd like to pray. I'd like to pray for you, and I'd like to pray for myself that we would, um, we would hear from God uh, and his word. Because I think it, it, there's a very uh, clear message in here for followers of Jesus, uh, regardless of our station, our age, and where we are. So let me pray to that end. Would you pray with me? Father God, we, uh, we pause again and we give you thanks for a chance to come and worship you. I pray that you would open your word to our heart and you would speak to us. Would you... Encourage us from your word to live boldly and completely for you. Would you be with those here, as Steve has said, or carrying a burden? And may you lighten it, because we can trust in you, uh, the great shepherd of our soul. And so, Lord, we ask that you be present here. Would you use my words, anoint my lips, that I might speak your word accurately and clearly. For your sake and for your kingdom, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So Peter says, live, live freely as God's slaves. Jesus talks about freedom. He talks about it a lot. And, and John chapter 8, talking to a crowd, he says this, Very truly I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. But, uh, excuse me, now, now a slave 
has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son, speaking of himself, if the son sets you free, and you're free indeed, you're really free. You're really free. Hey, uh, Andrew, could you do me a favor up there? Could you bump the lights up? We've got some dark spots. I can't see people, and so I don't know if they're making faces at me. And uh, I need to make, there we go. Thank you. Thank you. So, so I want you to be able to see your device, your pages. I want you to see all that. So Jesus speaks of freedom. And he says, hey, um, if, you're, if you fall into sin, then you become a slave to sin. But in me, you, you experience real freedom. And we're free from the penalty of sin because of his justification on the cross, because we're forgiven. We become increasingly free from the power of sin in our life as the Holy Spirit rules and reigns in us as we learn to yield to God's will and his spirit. And ultimately, we're going to experience the freedom of being out of the presence of sin when we're with him. So there's, there's this uh, progression of increasing freedom in the Christian life from what really enslaves us, which is sin. But the Apostle Paul would also declare and ring the bell for freedom. In Galatians chapter 5, there the freedom is to not be enslaved to a religious system of works and bondage. So here's what he says in Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Stand firm then and let nothing uh, and do not let yourselves be burdened again with the yoke of slavery. What's the slavery there? The slavery of a religious system that says you must prove to God how much you love him by living a perfect life rather than receiving the grace of Christ and knowing that you're forgiven based on what Christ has done. It's a burden. And if, if you find the freedom that we have in grace, it's completely liberating. And an immature response to liberation is to run wild. So there's a caution, just like Peter cautioned in verse 13 of Galatians. You, brothers and sisters, are called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. So if we're to live freely as God's slaves, then we're subservient to him and we are to love one another and serve one another in love. That's what we're free to do. <coughs> that, and so if you're free, free to do what? Free to love you and serve you. Free to love God and be his servant. So again, it says this. It's a voluntary act. Our submission to anything um, and to God is a voluntary act. And I put, put that statement back up there. Live freely as God's slave. So I just think that's a fundamental foundation. Now, last week, Dave talked about and Peter talked about living sent in, the, in, in relationship to the government. How am I supposed to live out my faith uh, if the government is oppressing me? And he begins to answer that. He moves from the civic world to the domestic world. And when he makes that move, he talks about slavery. And so let's look at that. First Peter chapter 2, verse 18. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only those who are good and considerate, but also those who are harsh. This is an extremely difficult passage to even read out loud. For people in our culture, in the West and in America, who love their independence and autonomy, 
such words seem so out of place that you would want to reject them. The fact is further complicated, in my opinion, when a postmodern culture says that we have human rights but have no basis for them. Right? We throw the basis out. Human rights that exist globally are usually um, founded on Judeo-Christian principles, and they have then become untied to those principles and the universal aspect. And so many people, particularly in the West and maybe uniquely in America, think that human rights is, is, a, is a fact that's known, celebrated, and enjoyed around the world. And it is not known or celebrated around the world. All you have to do is talk to people from oppressive countries where the citizens have no rights and Christians have no rights to know that this is not true. This verse is even still harder to hear in light of chattel slavery in America. Chattel slavery is a type of slavery where people aren't just subservient to you to pay off a debt or maybe because you're a prisoner of war, but they're your property, human property. So we need to stop and talk about slavery for a minute before we go too far into this passage because we need to know how to apply it to today, what it means and what it doesn't mean. So I want to start with ancient slavery in the ancient world. It was not yoked. It was not yoked to a racial hierarchy. That is to say, one race was not higher than another. Chattel slavery that we practiced in America was associated with um, race. We fought a civil war over it. Half a million plus people died to end it. And yet, and yet, many African Americans still fight to overcome the catastrophic and lingering impact of hundreds of years of slavery. In talking with my neighbor, Dr. Renee Brown, pastor of um, First Baptist Mount Zion, one of the oldest uh, historically black churches in our state, he just said, Kevin, you have to understand, slavery messed up black people. So I use that to, to quote him. Even so, to justify chattel slavery in America, two things were done. First, people were, were redefined as less than human. They were dehumanized. They were declared less than that. And that was true of all Africans and those of African descent. We know after a long history that whenever you dehumanize someone, you can then abuse them in your mind, rationally abuse them. And so the dehumanization of people is not new to America or Britain or to the slave trade of the 16 and 1700s. It's happened before and it's happened since. And what we discover through global history, both then and now, is when you dehumanize people, you can abuse them to the point of uh, enslavement and ultimately genocide. And so that's what can happen as it's played out. The second thing people in America did in order to promote and continue chattel slavery, which was an issue from the very first days 
of the American world from the, the founding of, of America, it was an issue that was debated and disagreed upon. But one of the things that was done to promote it was the abuse of the Bible, abusing the Bible, taking it out of context so that it will say what you want it to say rather than submitting to it and understanding what it says. And the verse we just read was one of the more prominent verses used to enslave people and keep them under the thumb. What it doesn't do is highlight the fact that in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, the practice of slave catching, slave trading, human trafficking was condemned by God for God's people. Exodus chapter 21, verse 16. Whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. So for the nation of Israel, if the Israelites were to practice slave trading, both those that captured people and those that bought them were to face the death penalty. That's a pretty tall order. <clears throat> in uh, 1 Timothy, Paul would write his disciple, Timothy, and say, let me help you understand how the Old Testament might be used in, in the New Covenant. It does help people understand right from wrong particularly if you've come out of a pagan world, you may not know. So in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9 and 10, it says this, We also know that the law was made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers, people that don't know, and for rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy, the irreligious, for those who kill their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for those practicing homosexuality, for slave traders, and liars, and perjurers. And then typical of Paul, a catchphrase at the end to include anything else. And for whatever else, it's contrary to sound doctrine. So, as I said, slavery in the ancient world was not tied to race. Just let me give you a couple of biblical illustrations of what to kind of illustrate the point. Hagar was Sarah's handmaiden. She was Sarah's slave. She was Egyptian. And she was, and her, her master was Hebrew. If you read through the book of Genesis, you'll discover Joseph is sold into slavery. He's a Hebrew, and he's sold into slavery into Egypt. So he's a Hebrew slave to the Egyptians. It's not based on race. Secondly, and this is important to understand about slavery in the ancient world, many people would actually sell themselves into slavery to beat living in destitution on the street. I would rather be a part of your house and work for you and maybe uh, earn enough money to establish myself because that did happen than live on the street where I would certainly face death, particularly for women. And thirdly, while many slaves in the ancient world were undoubtedly mistreated uh, and exploited, um, the advancement was possible. People were paid, um, if they were, particularly if they were in slavery because of debt, they earn off their debt, they make some money, and they move on and buy their freedom that way. I think more clarifying, even in our passage, the Apostle Peter uses a word that's translated slaves. It's not the word doulos, which you may know is the Greek word for bond servant. I'm bound to you. This is the word that Peter would use to describe us and God. We are his bond servants in, in chapter 2, verse 16. It's the, it's the moniker that, that Paul would give himself as he addressed churches in his letters. He would say, Paul a bondservant of God. I'm tied to him. This 
Uh, Peter's word here means house servant. House servant. And it's just a little, just a little distinction that helps us kind of understand who he's talking to and what he's talking to. I would conclude in this way, in talking about ancient slavery and the way um, the Bible speaks of it, that from the beginning of the book of Exodus, slavery is a primary condition from which God releases people. It's a theme. I'm going to release you from captivity in Egypt. I'm going to release you from bondage uh, of sin, and I'm going to free you. And the full extent of this, of the freedom, is expressed in the New Testament in powerful ways. Powerful ways. Paul would describe the body of Christ uniquely. It's made because we have trusted in Christ, the Holy Spirit indwells us, and it changes us. And there is to be no distinction between a slave and a free person. Here's how he says it in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. For we, includes himself, were all baptized into one spirit so as to form one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and we're all given one spirit to drink. There is to be no distinction in the church. We are all equal before God. When we trust Christ, we are family. Paul didn't just write about it as a theoretical, theological idea. He lived it out. As Dave mentioned last week, Paul was in prison because he would not quit, quit preaching that Jesus rose from the dead, even though he was instructed not to. While in prison, he met a slave. Funny story. He actually knew the slave owner's master. So uh, a whole letter in the New Testament is written to a slave owner about a slave. The owner's name is Philemon. The slave's name is Onesimus. When Paul meets him, Paul is just always living sent wherever he's in jail or wherever he's playing. And he introduces Onesimus to Jesus. And, and Onesimus says, yes, I believe. And then he finds out, who's your master? Philemon, whatever city. Oh, I know him. And so he sends Onesimus back to Paul with the letter that's in our New Testament. And in that letter, Paul says, hey, Philemon, you need to receive this servant back, no longer as a servant, but as a brother. But as a brother. Paul would write to Christian masters, and he would tell them this. In Colossians chapter 4, verse 1. Masters, provide for your slaves with what is right and fair. Because you know that you also have a master in heaven. You are a slave to God. You have a master. Treat those under you like you would want to be treated. Peter does not address masters. That's why first Peter was, was used to keep Suppress people because it doesn't address masters. Why doesn't it? I don't know. But, but it could be because of the size of the population of slaves in the Roman Empire. It's guessed. Uh, guess is probably the wrong word. It's, the experts say anywhere from, from 10 to 20 to 25% of the Roman population were slaves. They were either caught during the war. They were indebted. They sold themselves into slavery. And many of, so that's, what is that? Five to 10 million people were slaves and a lot of them were becoming Christians. And now they're trying to understand how am I to live out my faith 
as an indentured servant. How am I to do that? So back to chapter 2, verse 18. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only those who are good and considerate, but also those who are harsh. Peter begins where any instruction on the Christian life begins. It's out of reverent fear of God. It's out of, a, it's out of a respect for God that I'm going to live this life. Reverent fear. Some scholars suggest that even while slaves might be mistreated, many were given opportunities to advance, to be managers, overseers, trained laborers. There were even laws on the book of the Roman Empire about abuse of your servants. So the word harsh, it could mean something physical. The word literally means crooked. I think Peter's just saying to the servants that are Christians, you need to submit to those that are good and those that are bad. You need to do both. So to summarize, I say it this way. Submit to those over you out of reverence for God. But why in the world would Peter encourage slaves to be submissive? Why should they do this and why should they do it willingly? The next few verses help us understand his thinking and rationale and God's thinking and rationale. Verse 19, for it is commendable if someone bears up under a pain of unjust suffering because they're conscious of God. They're aware of God and they're doing They're enduring this pain because of their love for God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? If you've done wrong, then you're just getting your just desserts. But if you suffer for doing good and endure it, hmm, this is commendable before God. What we see here is that God is actually pleased when we suffer for doing good in, in his name, and endure it because we are conscious of him. And that just is, whew, that's tough. The word pain can also be translated sorrow, which I prefer because it's a sorrow to suffer under unjust pain. It's sorrowful emotionally. It's not just painful physically. To willingly to submit and do good, even when criticized for it. Remember, We do good and endure, ever mindful of God. It's not just personal endurance. Not just personal endurance. It's being aware that God is ever-present and he cares. So to summarize in your outline, do good. As you submit, even if you suffer for it, it pleases God. Now, slavery is not normative in our culture anymore. Praise God. So, How might we apply this passage to our day-to-day life? Well, if you you have a boss, it's applicable. If you are contracted to work for somebody, it's applicable. If you have a board that oversees you, it's applicable. If you have teachers that teach you, it's applicable. Still, I hear the university is a dangerous place to be a Christian. Students still are ridiculed in class for their faith, their position, if it becomes known. 
sports teams where you want to display your faith. And it, what makes this so unbearably, unbearable is that today it seems so out of place because we have, we have systems in place. If someone is uh, mistreating you, you, you go to the department head and you say, I was ridiculed in class. If someone is mistreating you or marginalizing you or not um, giving you the work that you should have because they know you're a Christian and they don't like that, well, you take that to the HR director. Many of us have not ever been in discriminating environments. If you have, then you know this reality. They're subtle. They're often very subtle in our culture. And so sometimes by raising your hand and going, there's a problem here, you only make things worse. Sometimes if you say, I'm going to take you to court, this is not right, it's only become worse. And so what do you do? How do you respond? How am I supposed to live if somebody over me is unkind, unreasonable, harsh, for no other reason than because I am a Christian? What am I supposed to do? Peter says, do good. Even if you face unjust treatment, continue to do good. That's that is, that is so hard to hear in our culture. He gives us more inspiration in verse 21. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his footsteps. The Apostle Peter is going to say, Jesus is the model, he's our motivation, and he's actually the means for us to live this way. For this you were called. Too many Christians forget implicit in following Jesus is suffering. Jesus said it would happen. He said, if the world hates you, remember it hated me first. And he's saying right here, to this you were called. What strong words. And Jesus is our example, a word that's only used by Peter. And it, and it means like tracing paper. Here's a little picture I found. Tracing paper where you're to follow every line. You're not just to look at it, you're to trace it. You're to fill it in. Our lives are to follow every line and feature of Christ. We are to follow in his steps. That means I'm doing this. And he was, uh, he suffered and was pain and sorrow of unjust suffering. So the great passage of the Old Testament of Jesus' suffering is Isaiah 53. And Peter goes to that passage, and he'll finish his section laying out pieces of Isaiah 53 and commenting on them. Here's 1 Peter uh, 2.22. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. He didn't do anything or say anything that would bring shame to God. While he was being beaten and ultimately crucified and dying, he didn't say or do anything. In other words, he didn't do what is most normal, and that is to retaliate. Verse 23, when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. 
When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, what did he do? He didn't do nothing. What did he do? He entrusted himself to him who judges justly. I'm going to trust God in this very difficult circumstance. You might remember that Pilate had a moment with Jesus to try to bring into perspective. Pilate said, don't you know I have the power of life and death over you? To which Jesus said, you don't have any authority over me except what has been given. I lay down my life and I'll pick it up again. I am free as a servant of God. Those are just, this is what Peter is calling us to. Us to. I said he was our model. He's our example. He's our motivation. He did it for us. But he also changes us. And and therefore I say he becomes the means. Verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds we are healed. When we die to sins, we can die to the need and the absolute necessity to retaliate when we're mistreated, to get even, to manipulate the situation. Jesus didn't say a word on social media, in email. He didn't send anything. That's the way I understand he said nothing in defense of himself. You might remember Stephen was stoned for being a follower of Jesus. He said nothing. These are very difficult passages because for many people, they live in very difficult situations and they need to know that their Savior completely understands what it's like to be falsely accused and falsely beaten as they themselves might be. And Peter says, he's done that and he's changing you and you can live differently. You can be free regardless of what they might do to your outside. You can be free. And then in verse 25, he brings some conclusion. He says, For you were like sheep going astray, quoting from Isaiah. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us turned over his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You were like sheep going astray, but now you have turned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Your soul is fine. It is well with my soul because I've entrusted it to the only one who can care for it. I can live freely as God's slave under any circumstance because God is watching over my soul. It's the only place in the New Testament where Jesus is called an overseer. I almost want to translate it master. You've returned to the shepherd and master of what? Of your soul. These are powerful words for folks that have no options. Americans always have options, it feels like. I do. I have lots of them. Right? But what do I say to somebody that has none? Do good. And if doing good, and here's what we need to understand as a culture, it will not be long 
before what we know, what we know is good is declared bad. And if you choose to do good, you will be declared bad. It's not just that they don't like you. It'll be that people disagree with how you define what is good. And we define it based on what God says. But here's the truth of the matter is, if it's about, let's just use the employer-employee relationship. Every employee likes a worker that shows up on time and does a full day's work. I tell my kids growing up, if you show up on time and you do a full day's work, you're going to outpace a lot of people. Just get there, do the job, and you do it honestly, and you do it with integrity. And even if people dislike you, they're going to like the work. And what is, when Christ endured his suffering, he first, remember, he asked that it not be as tough as it was. And then he submitted. And he knew that he would have to die in order to achieve what God had purposed in his life and his death. I don't know what God has purposed for us when we submit to those over us. I just know that he's called us to it. And if you're there and it's difficult, it's pleasing to him. It's grace to him. It's awesome to him. When you have him in mind and you're doing what is right, even if you're ridiculed for it, even if you're marginalized for it, even if you're overlooked for it, there is one who is applauding who is cheering, who is for you, and it is the God of the universe. In your outline, we say it this way, Christ is our example as we suffer in submission. Suffering. Jesus had his eye on God. Peter says, now that you've entrusted yourself to the guardian, to the overseer, to the shepherd of your soul, you can live this way as he empowers you by the power of the Holy Spirit. But there's something about submission that leaves us feeling overly exposed. We feel exposed. If I submit here and there's no one to validate me or be concerned about my interest, I might be taken advantage of. And so submission in general concept is frightening. It's scary. And yet that is what these sections call the Christian to be. Years ago, I read a poem entitled Amen. I want to share it again today. Amen is the Hebrew word for yes, may it be. It's affirmative, yes. It's written by Adrian Plass, and he puts his finger on the issue of the difficulty of submission and the scariness of it. Here's what it says. When I became a Christian, I said, Lord, now fill me in. Tell me what I'll suffer in this world of shame and sin. He said, your body may be killed and left to rot and stink. Do you still want to follow me? I said, amen, I think. I think amen, amen, I think. I think I say amen. I'm not completely sure. Can we just run through this again? You say my body may be killed and left to rot and stink? Well, yes, that sounds terrific, Lord. I say amen, I think. But Lord, there must be other ways to follow you, I said. I really would prefer to end up dying in my bed. Well, yes, he said. You could put up with the sneers and scorn and spit 
do you still want to follow me? I said, amen, a bit. A bit, amen, amen, a bit. I, a bit, I say amen. I'm not entirely sure. Can we just run through this again? You say I could put up with sneers and also scorn and spit? Well, yes, I've made up my mind. I say amen, a bit. Well, I sat back and I thought a while and I tried a different ploy. Now, Lord, I said, the good book says that Christians live in joy. That's true, he said. You'll need the joy to bear the pain and sorrow. Do you want to follow me? And I said, amen, tomorrow. Tomorrow, Lord, I'll say it then. That's when I'll say amen. I need to get it clear. Can we just run through it again? You say I'll need the joy to bear the pain and sorrow? Well, yes, I think I've got it straight. I'll say amen tomorrow. He said, look, I'm not asking you to spend an hour with me, a quick salvation sandwich and a cup of sanctity. The cost is you, not half of you, every single bit. Now tell me, will you follow me? And I said, amen, I quit. I'm sorry, Lord. I said, I'd like to follow you, but I don't think religion is a manly thing to do. He said, forget religion then and think about my son and tell me if you're man enough to do the things he's done. Are you man enough to see the need and man enough to go? Are you man enough to care for those that no one wants to know? Are you man enough to say the thing that people hate to hear? To battle through Gethsemane and loneliness and fear. And listen, are you man enough to stand it at the end, the moment of betrayal by the kisses of a friend? Are you man enough to hold your tongue? Are you man enough to cry when the nails break your body? Are you man enough to die? Are you man enough to take the pain and wear it like a crown? Are you man enough to love this world and turn it upside down? Are you man enough to follow me? I'll ask you once again. And I said, oh, Lord, I'm frightened. But I also said, amen. Amen, 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 amen. Amen, amen, amen. Oh, Lord, I am so frightened. But I also said amen. God can take the smallest amen from you, full of faith. That's what he asks of us. Submission feels so antiquated, so outdated, so unnecessary. And yet it's exactly what the Savior did for us in obedience to the Father to the very end. He became a servant and took on the form as a human and died and rose again. And he calls us to follow that example, to be motivated by his love, to be filled with his strength, and to do the same. 
These were not harsh words to be picked over and spit out like bones for Peter's readers. They were words of life. They were words of hope. They were the perspective, the directive, and the motivation they needed to live under very difficult circumstances as men and women with integrity who please God. It's a high calling. My prayer for you today, for me today, is that even in our fearful moments, we can say amen. Let's pray together. Father God, today, whether it's a boss or a teacher, a coach, a board, to whomever we must submit, I pray that we would do it with our eyes on you, full of integrity, very conscious of you. And if doing good and speaking truth and loving you causes us pain and sorrow and suffering, we ask that you be with us in the midst of it, that you might get us through it. Lord, we know many, many around the world suffer. Many have. Mature us as we seek to follow you through submission and obedience, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks for joining us. To find out more about the chapel, visit thechapelbr.com.